0: Part four, chapters three to five of the voyages of Dr. Dolittle by Hugh Lofting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three, bad weather. As soon as I had the curlew swung round upon her course again, I noticed something peculiar. We were not going as fast as we had been. Our favorable wind had almost entirely disappeared. This, at first, we did not worry about, thinking that. At any moment it might spring up again, but the whole day went by, then two days, then a week, ten days, and the wind grew no stronger. The curlew just dawdled along at the speed of a toddling babe. I now saw the doctor was becoming uneasy. He kept getting out his sextant, an instrument which tells you which part of the ocean you are in, and making calculations. He was forever looking at his maps and measuring distances on them. The far edge of the sea all around us he examined with his telescope a hundred times a day.
1: But, Doctor...
0: I said when I found him one afternoon, mumbling to himself about the misty appearance of the sky.
1: It wouldn't matter
2: so much, would it, if we did take a little longer over the trip? We've got plenty to eat on board now, and the Purple Bird of Paradise will know that we've been delayed by something that we couldn't help.
0: Yes, I suppose so, he said thoughtfully. But I hate to keep her waiting. At this season of the year, she generally goes to the Peruvian mountains for her health. And besides, the good weather she prophesied is likely to end any day now and delay us still further. If we could only keep moving at even a fair speed, I wouldn't mind. It's this hanging around, almost dead still, that gets me restless. Ah, here comes a wind. Not very strong, but maybe it'll grow. A gentle breeze from the northeast came singing through the ropes, and we smiled up hopefully at the curlews' leaning masts. We've only got another hundred and fifty miles to make to sight the coast of Brazil, said the doctor. If that wind would just stay with us, steady, for a full day, we'd see land. But suddenly the wind changed, swung to the east, then back to the northeast, then to the north it came in fitful gusts as though it hadn't made up its mind which way to blow and i was kept busy at the wheel swinging the curlew this way and that to keep the right sight of it presently we heard polynesia who was in the rigging keeping a lookout for land or passing ships screech down to us
1: bad weather coming that jumpy wind is an ugly sign and look over there in the east see that black line low down if that isn't a storm i'm a land-lubber the gales round here are fierce, and when they do blow, tear your canvas out like paper. You take the wheel, Doctor. It'll need a strong arm if it's a real storm. I'll go wake Bumpo and Chee Chee. This looks bad to me. We'd best get all the sail down right away till we see how strong she's going to blow.
0: Indeed, the whole sky was now beginning to take on a very threatening look. The black line to the eastward grew blacker as it came nearer and nearer a low rumbling whispering noise went moaning over the sea the water which had been so blue and smiling turned to a ruffled ugly grey and across the darkening sky shreds of clouds swept like tattered witches flying from the storm i must confess i was frightened you see i had only so far seen the sea in friendly moods sometimes quiet and lazy sometimes laughing venturesome and reckless sometimes brooding and poetic when moonbeams turned her ripples into silver threads and dreaming snowy night-clouds piled up fairy castles in the sky but as yet i had not known or even guessed at the terrible strength of the sea's wild anger when that storm finally struck us we leaned right over flatly on our side as though some invisible giant had slapped the poor curlew on the cheek after that things happened so thick and so fast that what with the wind that stopped your breath the driving blinding water the deafening noise and the rest i haven't a very clear idea of how our shipwreck came about i remember seeing the sails which we were now trying to roll up upon the deck torn out of our hands by the wind and go overboard like a penny balloon very nearly carrying Chee with them and i have a dim recollection of polynesia screeching somewhere for one of us to go downstairs and close the portholes in spite of our mast being bare of sail we were now scudding along to the southward at a great pace but every once in a while huge gray black waves would arise from under the ship's side like nightmare monsters swell and climb then crash down upon us pressing us into the sea and the poor kooloo would come to a standstill half under water like a gasping drowning pig while i was clambering along towards the wheel to see the doctor Clinging like a leech with hands and legs to the rails, lest I be blown overboard, one of these tremendous seas tore loose my hold, filled my throat with water, and swept me like a cork the full length of the deck. My head struck a door with an awful bang, and then I fainted. Chapter 4. Wrecked When I awoke, I was very hazy in my head. The sky was blue, and the sea was calm. At first I thought that I must have fallen asleep in the sun on the deck of the curlew. And thinking that I would be late for my turn at the wheel, I tried to rise to my feet. I found I couldn't. My arms were tied to something behind me with a piece of rope. By twisting my neck around, I found this to be a mast broken off short. Then I realized that I wasn't sitting on a ship at all. I was only sitting on a piece of one. I began to feel uncomfortably scared. Screwing up my eyes, I searched the rim of the sea, north, east, south, and west. No land, no ships, nothing was in sight. I was alone in the ocean. At last, little by little, my bruised head began to remember what had happened. First the coming of the storm, the sails going overboard, then the big wave which had banged me against the door. BUT WHAT HAD BECOME OF THE DOCTOR AND THE OTHERS? WHAT DAY WAS THIS? TOMORROW? OR THE DAY AFTER? AND WHY WAS I SITTING ON ONLY PART OF A SHIP? WORKING MY HAND INTO MY POCKET, I FOUND MY penknife AND CUT THE ROPE THAT TIED ME. THIS REMINDED ME OF A SHIPWRECK STORY WHICH JOE HAD ONCE TOLD ME, OF A CAPTAIN WHO HAD TIED HIS SON TO A mast IN ORDER THAT HE SHOULDN'T BE WASHED OVERBOARD BY THE GALE. SO, OF COURSE, IT MUST HAVE BEEN THE DOCTOR WHO HAD DONE THE SAME TO ME but where was he the awful thought came to me that the doctor and the rest of them must be drowned since there was no other wreckage to be seen upon the waters i got to my feet and stared around the sea again nothing nothing but water and sky presently a long way off i saw the small dark shape of a bird skimming low down over the swell then it came quite close I saw that it was a stormy petrel. I tried to talk to it, to see if it could give me news. But unluckily I hadn't learned much seabird language, and I couldn't even attract its attention, much less make it understand what I wanted. Twice it circled round my raft, lazily, with hardly a flip of the wing. And I could not help wondering, in spite of the distress I was in, where it had spent last night, how it or any other living thing had weathered such a smashing storm. It made me realize the great difference between different creatures, and that size and strength are not everything. To this Petrel, a frail little thing of feathers, much smaller and weaker than I, the sea could do anything she liked, it seemed. And his only answer was a lazy, saucy flip of the wing. He was the one who should be called the able seaman. For come raging gale, come sunlit calm, this wilderness of water was his home after swooping over the sea around me just looking for food i suppose he went off in the direction from which he had come and i was alone once more i found i was somewhat hungry and a little thirsty too i began to think of all sorts of miserable thoughts the way one does when he is lonesome and has missed breakfast what was going to become of me now if the doctor and the rest were drowned i would starve to death or die of thirst Then the sun went behind some clouds, and I felt cold. How many hundreds or thousands of miles was I from any land? What if another storm should come and smash up even this poor raft on which I stood? I went on like this for a while, growing gloomier and gloomier, when suddenly I thought of Polynesia.
1: You're always safe with the doctor,
0: she had said.
1: He gets there. Remember that.
0: I'm sure I wouldn't have minded so much if he had been here with me. It was this being all alone that made me want to weep. And yet the petrol was alone. What a baby I was, I told myself, to be scared to the verge of tears just by loneliness. I was quite safe where I was, for the present anyhow. John Dolittle wouldn't get scared by a little thing like this. He only got excited when he made a discovery, found a new bug or something, And if what Polynesia said was true, he couldn't be drowned, and things would come out all right in the end, somehow. I threw out my chest, buttoned up my collar, and began walking up and down the short raft to keep warm. I would be like John Doodle. I wouldn't cry, and I wouldn't get excited. How long I paced back and forth, I don't know. But it was a long time, for I had nothing else to do. At last I got tired and lay down to rest, and in spite of all my troubles I soon fell fast asleep. This time, when I woke up, stars were staring down at me out of a cloudless sky. The sea was still calm, and my strange craft was rocking gently under me on an easy swell. All my fine courage left me as I gazed up into the big silent night and felt the pains of hunger and thirst set to work in my stomach harder than ever are you awake said a high silvery voice at my elbow i sprang up as though someone had stuck a pin in me and there perched at the very end of my raft her beautiful tail glowing dimly in the starlight sat miranda the purple bird of paradise never have i been so glad to see anyone in my life i almost fell into the water as i leapt to hug her
2: i didn't want to wake you said she "'I guessed you must be tired after all you've been through. "'Don't squash the life out of me, boy. "'I'm not a stuffed duck, you know.' "'Oh, Miranda, you dear old thing,' said I, "'I'm so glad to see you. "'Tell me, where is the doctor? Is he alive?' "'Of course he's alive, and it's my firm belief he always will be. "'He's over there, about forty miles to the westward.' "'What's he doing there?' "'He's sitting on the other half of the curlew, shaving himself. "'Or he was, when I left him.' "'Well, thank heaven he's alive!' said I. "'And Bumpo? And the animals? Are they all right?' "'Yes, they're with him. "'Your ship broke in half in the storm. "'The doctor had tied you down when he found you stunned. "'And the part you were on got separated and floated away. "'Golly, it was a storm!' one has to be a gull or an albatross to stand that sort of weather i had been watching for the doctor for three weeks from a cliff top but last night i had to take refuge in a cave to keep my tail feathers from blowing out as soon as i found the doctor he sent me off with some porpoises to help us in our search there had been quite a gathering of seabirds waiting to greet the doctor but the rough weather sort of broke up the arrangements that had been made to welcome him properly it was the petrol that first gave us the tip where you were well but how can i get to the doctor miranda i haven't any oars get to him why you're going to him now look behind you
0: i turned around the moon was just rising on the sea's edge "'and I now saw that my raft was moving through the water, "'but so gently that I had not noticed it before.
2: "'What's moving us?' I asked. "'The porpoises,'
0: said Miranda. "'I went to the back of the raft and looked down into the water, "'and just below the surface I could see the dim forms of four big porpoises, "'their sleek skins glinting in the moonlight, "'pushing at the raft with their noses.
2: "'They're old friends of the doctor's,'
0: said Miranda
2: they'd do anything for john dolittle we should see his party soon now we're pretty near the place i left them yes there they are see that dark shape no more to the right of where you're looking can't you make out the figure of the black man standing against the sky now chi chi spies us he's waving don't you see them
0: i didn't for my eyes were not as sharp as miranda's but presently, from somewhere in the murky dusk, I heard Bumpo singing his African comic songs with the full force of his enormous voice. And in a little, by peering and peering in the direction of the sound, I at last made out a dim mass of tattered, splintered wreckage, all that remained of the poor curlew, floating low down upon the water. A hello came through the night, and I answered it. We kept it up, calling to one another back and forth across the calm night sea and a few minutes later the two halves of our brave little ruined ship bumped gently together again now that i was nearer and the moon was higher i could see more plainly Their half of the ship was much bigger than mine it lay partly upon its side and most of them were perched upon the top munching ship's biscuit but close down to the edge of the water using the sea's calm surface for a mirror and a piece of broken bottle for a razor john dolittle was shaving his face by the light of the moon Chapter Five. Land. They all gave me a great greeting as I clambered off my half of the ship onto theirs. Bumpo brought me a wonderful drink of fresh water, which he drew from a barrel, and Chee Chee and Polynesia stood about me, feeding me ship's biscuit. But it was the sight of Doctor Doolittle's smiling face, just knowing that I was with him once again, that cheered me more than anything else as i watched him carefully wipe his glass razor and put it away for future use i could not help comparing him in my mind with the stormy petrel indeed the vast strange knowledge which he had gained from his speech and friendship with animals had brought him the power to do things which no other human being would dare to try like the petrel he could apparently play with the sea in all her moods it was no wonder that many of the ignorant savage peoples among whom he passed in his voyages made statues of him showing him as half a fish half a bird and half a man and ridiculous though it was i could quite understand what miranda meant when she said she firmly believed he could never die just to be with him gave you a wonderful feeling of comfort and safety except for his appearance his clothes were crumpled and damp and his battered high hat was stained with salt water the storm which had so terrified me had disturbed him no more than getting stuck in the mud-bank in puddleby river politely thanking miranda for getting me so quickly he asked her if she would now go ahead of us and show us the way to spider monkey island next he gave orders to the porpoises to leave my old piece of the ship and push the bigger half wherever the bird of paradise should lead us how much he had lost in the wreck besides his racer i did not know everything most likely together with all the money he had saved up to buy the ship with. And still he was piling as though he wanted for nothing in the world. The only things he had saved, as far as I could see, beyond the barrel of water and bag of biscuit, were his precious notebooks. These I saw when he stood up. He had strapped around his waist with yards and yards of twine. He was, as old Matthew Mugg used to say, a great man. He was unbelievable." And now, for three days, we continued our journey slowly but steadily southward. The only inconvenience we suffered from was the cold. This seemed to increase as we went forward. The doctor said that the island, disturbed from its usual path by the great gale, had evidently drifted further south than it had ever been before. On the third night, poor Miranda came back to us nearly frozen. She told the doctor that in the morning we would find the island quite close to us though we couldn't see it now, as it was a misty, dark night. She said that she must hurry back at once to a warmer climate, and that she would visit the doctor in Puddleby next August as usual. Don't forget, Miranda, said John Doolittle, if you should hear anything of what happened to Long Arrow to get word to me. The bird of paradise assured him she would, and after the doctor had thanked her again and again for all that she had done for us, she wished us good luck and disappeared into the night. We were all awake early in the morning, long before it was light, waiting for our first glimpse of the country we had come so far to see. And as the rising sun turned the eastern sky to gray, of course it was old Polynesia who first shouted that she could see palm trees and mountain tops. With the growing light it became plain to all of us, a long island with high rocky mountains in the middle, "'and so near to us that you could almost throw your hat upon the shore. "'The porpoises gave us one last push, "'and our strange-looking craft bumped gently on a low beach. "'Then, thanking our lucky stars for a chance to stretch our cramped legs, "'we all bundled off to the land. "'The first land, even though it was floating land, "'that we had trodden for six weeks. "'What a thrill I felt as I realized that Spider-Monkey Island, "'the little spot in the atlas which my pencil had touched, lay at last beneath my feet. When the light increased still further, we noticed that the palms and grasses of the island seemed withered and almost dead. The doctor said that it must be on account of the cold that the island was now suffering from in its new climate. These trees and grasses, he told us, were the kind that belonged to warm, tropical weather. The porpoises asked if we wanted them any further, and the doctor said he didn't think so, not for the present nor the raft either, he added, for it was already beginning to fall to pieces, and could not float much longer. As we were preparing to go inland and explore the island, we suddenly noticed a whole band of red Indians watching us with great curiosity from among the trees. The doctor went forward to talk to them, but he could not make them understand. He tried by signs to show them that he had come on a friendly visit. The Indians didn't seem to like us, however— they had bows and arrows and long hunting spears with stone points in their hands and they made signs back to the doctor to tell him that if he came a step nearer they would kill us all they evidently wanted us to leave the island at once it was a very uncomfortable situation at last the doctor made them understand that he only wanted to see the island all over and that then he would go away though how he meant to do it with no boat to sail in was more than I could imagine. While they were talking among themselves, another Indian arrived, apparently with a message that they were wanted in some other part of the island, because presently, shaking their spears threateningly at us, they went off with the newcomer. What discourteous pagans, said Bumpo, did you ever see such inhospitability? Never even asked us if we had had breakfast. The benighted bounders.
1: Shush! They're going off to their village,
0: said Polynesia.
1: I bet there's a village on the other side of those mountains. If you take my advice, Doctor, you'll get away from this beach while their backs are turned. Let's go up into the higher land for the present. Some place where they won't know where we are. They may grow friendlier when they see we mean no harm. They have honest, open faces and look like a decent crowd to me. They're just ignorant. Probably never saw white folks before.
0: So, feeling a little bit discouraged by our first reception, we moved off towards the mountains in the center of the island. End of part 4, Chapter 5